Hello and welcome to another episode of Sim Sundays. Uh, it's just me this week. Uh, Chris is uh, is not available, so it's uh, it's just me and our guest Andre Eriksson, CEO and founder of Asatech. Welcome, Andre. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, Asatech have made a real splash in sim racing recently, and I had a little look. I saw I saw your Invicta pedals come up, and I was like, ah. Oh. A new product on the market because it feels a little bit, had been a little bit stale for a while. It was the same old brands that I was seeing over and over again. And I saw Invicta. I was like, oh, that looks a little bit different. That looks interesting. So I thought I'd reach out and see if you'd be, uh, you'd be interested in coming on the podcast. Um, and then I was looking at your, your CV and Asatec's journey. And I thought, wow, okay, this is, is going to be an interesting story to tell. So if you don't mind, can we start from the beginning? How did Asatec start? Yeah, I don't think we have time enough to, to cover it all, but uh, I'll do it as, uh, as quick uh, as I can. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, a tool maker uh, by trade uh, originally, so I could build all kinds of prototypes myself. I, I actually still, now more than 20 years after, have uh, lathes and milling machines and stuff in my own house. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I became an engineer. And while I was studying, uh, we are back in the mid-90s now at the university. I was in, uh, the university I was on uh, was very much focused on group work and teamwork. So you would actually work in teams rather than individually. And the guys I was with, they were just hardcore gamers. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the, you, you would have your own room at the university and our room was called the central because the, we are now pre-Wi-Fi. So we had wires coming in and out and across the building and it was crazy and they were gaming like nice. uh, crazy. Like the ultimate and, land party. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I, I was more into the hardware side. Uh, you know, at, at that time I had a Pentium Pro 180 megahertz uh, overclocked to 233, uh, which was uh, pretty crazy back then. <laughs> So there was this game, the motocross game, I don't remember the title anymore, but all of a sudden I could beat my teammates uh, and they were gaming all the time, right? So I figured out eventually it was because I had a faster processor. So my difference was that I had overclocked it and cooled it. So I started to build this uh, cooling system, also known as the VapoChill, which was a cult product, I believe uh, it still is uh, in this community. So I started the Asetech while studying at university, actually. Uh, I had no money, I had no plan, I had nothing. I just started to sell products. Um, so, so that was the, the, the early story of it. And then... Um, so just to your, just to your friends, you just, you just sold cooling systems to your friends and then word got out and it just grew from there? You, you know, we are, we are so early in the internet days that you would be downloading a driver, for example, with a modem at three kilobit per second. Uh, wow. That's how early we were. <laughs> uh, but I had a friend who was a 3D artist, so he actually helped me building uh, the, the first website. So I started to export to the US, to Japan, to the UK. I mean, globally, we just started right away. And of course, I had no clue what I was doing, uh, but it was fun. and. It took me years to realize that, that Asetech should actually become a career of mine. So I got a, a job, a very sought after job at Danfoss. Danfoss is Denmark's largest industrial group, global company. So I got a, a place in their management trainee program. 
So I thought I was going there to become a, a manager, a senior manager at Danfoss at some point. But Danfoss uh, at the time was also one of the world's largest compressor manufacturers. And uh, the first project I did at Danfoss was shut down for irrelevant reasons. And then uh, one of the managers from the compressor, hermetic compressor plant uh, managers in Germany, said, why don't we take this young entrepreneur in at Danfoss here in Germany? Uh, you know, it could be a new business area from, from Danfoss. And we realize he's young and, uh, and all that. But on the other hand, he's probably the one knowing most about computer cooling in the world right now. So I got to work at Danfoss with my own little pet project. And uh, I used Danfoss's lifetime labs to actually mature the product and make it scalable and sellable and manufacturable and all that. And then, uh, you know, at Danfoss, it went slow. It's a mm. gigantic company. So yeah. things went slow. And then one day I was like, I, I said to my wife, let's try on our own. And wow. I quit my job at Danfoss and yeah, then I started. So you essentially went from being an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneur. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's very cool. So then what was it like when you, you know, because a lot of people, I think in the last couple of years have, have tried to start their own business and you, in order to start your own business, you have to take that first leap of faith, right? You have to leave the comfort of a, of a salary and, and benefits and pension and blah, 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 blah. You have to leave all that behind and take a bit of a leap of faith. But it, it sounds like maybe the confidence you had to do that was all stemming from the confidence you had in the product. Yeah, but I, I think I was a little bit of an odd bird because 20 <laughs> years ago in uh, in Denmark, it was not attractive at all to start your own business. And on the flip side, the program I was uh, fortunate to become a part of, I think they hired 10, 12 people out of two, 3,000 applicants every wow. year. So people actually thought I was crazy. Uh, say, here you have a job for the next 50 years if you want to. You can make it all the way to the top of a global company and you are in one of the most attractive positions there is and now you go off on your own but that's not the way i i saw it you know i was never really attracted uh, by money i don't come from a wealthy family uh, i don't come from a poor family either but you know just a normal yeah. family and we have this security net in denmark that you know there's no reason to start your own business right. uh, yeah, yeah but today of course it's become more popular but i I didn't really think about it. I was like, of course it'll work out. Why would it not work out? Of course I became smarter over the years, but right. uh, that stems you from know, the passion, I started, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I, um, so I had my engineering background and my tool maker background. I never really had uh, any finance background or anything like that. But as a kid, I was driving motocross. So I've been involved in motorsports my entire life. And uh, my parents, they could not uh, fund that. Mm. So I was kind of brought up early on that if I wanted to do it, I had to make my own money. So I was buying all motorcycles, all mopeds, all kind of stuff and fixing it, selling it off, making money. I had all kind of jobs next to school. So I, at least I had this background that I knew that I had to manufacture something cheap and then sell it more expensive. So I understood the basic uh, rules of it, of course. Um, and then I found a template for a business plan and then I started to fill in this uh, template and to make matters worse this was in uh, 99 early 2000 so when the internet bubble uh, burst right. for real uh, you know two years earlier 
I think the easiest way for me to raise money would be to say how much money we burned. That's that was the time that the higher burn rate you had, the more money you would get. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> but crazy. now it was all of a sudden the opposite. So I spent a lot of time on explaining what could go wrong and what would probably go wrong if people invested in me. And that honest approach apparently worked because I actually got uh, private investors and VC investors uh, relatively easy. And then the hard days begun because, or began because up until now it was all fun. It was all about uh, building mm. new product, etc. But you know, one day it comes down to also being a business. And uh, that was the tough thing because we were selling these vapor chill cooling systems and they worked great and people were happy. The problem was there was just not enough people who wanted to spend $1,000 on a cooler. Um, so that's when we invented this trade name called Water Chill, where we started to do uh, liquid cooling. Mm. And of course, already at the time, there were several people doing liquid cooling for PCs. But we invented this uh, all-in-one system. I would say that's probably in 75% of all gaming PCs out there today. Uh, we don't sell directly on our own brand. We sell through uh, OEM customers. But we have sold more than 10 million of these. And, and that's really where the business started to grow. Um, but, but this whole concept of starting, uh, you know, I think it was in 2007, we still did not really have a profitable business. And uh, I was in Denmark still uh, sending emails back and forth to the big OEMs. And then I realized and said, Andre, if you ever want Asetech to become successful, you need to be where the customers are. So my wife and I and two very small kids, uh, one and two years, we moved to California, Silicon Valley. And I think there was money for my salary for the next four or five months. That was it. So it was either raise money or die. That's uh, pretty scary, right? When you, when you kind of get faced with that cliff, you know, you've got yeah. a runway that looks three or four months long and you're like, well, if, if, ever, the, if ever I needed motivation to make this work, it's, it's this. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we, we had the choice of staying in Denmark and I couldn't, I, I could, of course, have gotten another daytime job, but I was passionate about the business and I also believed in it. I just thought that this concept of emailing Dell from Denmark and getting an email across every second week, if you're lucky, mm. I mean, it would never catch momentum. I needed to be in front of the customers and, and that really worked. And we also raised money. Otherwise, we would not have been here today, of course. Of course. And so this is, um, so this is, is this the start of your kind of B2B journey? You're selling to businesses. Because I know yes. that you have the, the kind of the, uh, the contracts with the large data centers for cooling, as well as B2C, so selling to, to customers. So gamers putting, putting, um, uh, putting cooling systems in their own gaming PCs. What was that transition like? Did, you know, because you've got to you've got to completely reframe everything in your head, right? If you're selling to businesses versus selling to customers, how did you how did you learn how to do that? I, I think the 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 business to consumer is always the easy one because consumer are passionate, and you know when you are selling whether it's sim sports in the early days as we are now, or if it was uh, liquid cooling in the early days, you have a lot of enthusiasts. Uh, there's often not a lot of business in it, but there's a lot of enthusiasm. Whereas uh, B2C, it's a, or sorry, B2B, it's a completely different animal. Um, you know, our biggest customers, for example, uh, today OEM customers like Alienware, so that's Dell, uh, it's very, very different requirements. 
but I think I was uh, I was lucky in the sense that what the OEMs really worry about is quality and reliability. That's two sides of the same coin, you could say. And uh, because I used to spend my time in Danfoss's lifetime labs maturing my own product, I kind of understood these requirements. Mm. Uh, that does not mean it was easy, but it was easier. Um, and I, I think that is really the, the, the strength of our products. Uh, I mean, you will probably not find a CEO and say, we have great marketing and shitty products. Uh, I don't know anyone who would say that, but, but I think uh, for us, it's, it's really true. Uh, if you think about it, although Acetec has grown quite significantly, we are still a very small company compared to these big OEMs. So the fact that they trust us is really, it speaks volume about our quality. They know they can count on it uh, to not break down. Um, if, if you just take an example, let's say you are a PC OEM, you sell uh, or you send or ship uh, a gaming PC several countries away, and then one component breaks down. Before you have that back and before you have replaced that component, you have lost all profits. So as such, we are very important uh, component because as everyone knows, if the wet stuff uh, comes outside the cooler and down mm -hmm. to the motherboard or graphics card or something like that, then the, the PC is broken. So uh, I, I think that, that, was the, that was the most difficult thing to do. How do you prove as a small company to a very large corporation that your product will last for the next 50,000 hours without breaking down? So that, was, uh, that was tough. So... How was it walking into the office of, of, of Dell, right? Because so you said that you didn't really have much background in finance. You're an engineering guy. You, you know, you, you Googled a, a business plan template to, to fill out. So you were very much learning on the job. Um, what was it like walking into somewhere like Dell? Did you have that famous imposter syndrome being like, how the hell did I get here? How's this going to go? They're going to ask me questions. They're going to use words. That I don't know what it means. Like, how was it? I think uh, that the, the trickiest parts uh, were, were probably the contracts. Uh, you know, you get 400 pages of uh, legal stuff and because there's so much difference in size of the companies, you know, you get the feeling that when you get a contract from a corporation like that, it's already so single-sided that mm -hmm. even if you get it uh, your way, uh, you know, it's still very single-sided. So th th that was tough, but there are... There are a couple of uh, fun moments in, 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 in I would say, in, in Asetek's uh, founding story. So with Dell specifically, I had been kicking tires with them and their engineers for, for years, and there was just no business and nothing happened. And then uh, I got a, a board member. Um, his name is Henri Richard. He was, the, um, he was the CMO, Chief Sales and Marketing Officer at AMD at the time, and he was friends with Michael Dell. So I got uh, Michael Dell's uh, address, private address, uh, an email from him. And then I went to, uh, to Dell.com and I bought the biggest, uh, baddest ass gaming PC <laughs> I could buy for money. And uh, in there, they had um, a liquid cooler at the time from a company called Delphi, which is a sub supplier to the car industry. And it also looked like a cooling system from a car. Right. Uh, I took that out put in our liquid cooling system, which in my opinion was much smaller, much better, and, and also much cheaper. And then I sent it back to Michael Dell, and that's actually when things happened. So Michael Dell tested it personally, and he said, wow, this is really great. 
let's talk to this guy. And then he assigned the right team inside Dell. And that was actually how we got the first design win uh, at Dell. Wow. I mean, that's... Um, that's not something that you would that you could learn at, at business school, right? That is just pure no. intuition. Absolutely, and uh, I also have a story that we can laugh off it now, but it was not so 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 fun at the time. So that was with HP. They had just bought a Voodoo PC, and uh, we were also being designed in. And of course, when you work for a big company like HP or Dell or Intel, etc you're not necessarily cognizant of the fact that the company you're talking to are tiny and can go in bankruptcy tomorrow because they're so small. So they have all the time in the world. Mm. And at some point, I was not really happy with the pace at, at, uh, at HP. Uh, at, at this specific moment, it was about the contract. So then I halted all development work and uh, it worked. We got the contract up to speed, but I probably pissed off uh, half of HP <laughs> and it took me uh, several years to repair that relationship. So, it, you know, there are some hard learnings there on, on how to do and, and certainly also how not to do. Right. But you did do some learning as you went, right? So you've done MBA level business courses at Stanford and MIT, which is just bonkers to me that those are kind of, you know, mythical institutions that, that I've heard of and, you know, the, the reverence is, you know, it's incredible. So at what stage in your business career did you start deciding, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start studying what I'm doing as I'm doing it? I, I think uh, when I, when I came to Silicon Valley, then I, uh, I had small kids, but because I was nine hours away from Denmark and my family and everything, I also, although I was racing and spent a lot of time on, on racing, then I also had more time and uh, the company was growing. So I, I, I got these, uh, you know, ideas uh, also say, wonder if the theory looks behind all that I'm doing right now. And that's why I did this. Uh, I had this strategy program at Wharton, for example. Um, I was at MIT doing an entrepreneurship uh, program. Uh, and then, yeah, I've been at Stanford a few times also, management and things like that. And also, uh, perhaps where I should have started <laughs> uh, if I had had the time and money back then was I, I took a program called Financials for the Non-Financial Executive. Uh, and of course, I've learned a lot from these educations and from, from these programs. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, business is not that difficult. Uh, I, because I have the technical background myself, because I have really understood the markets that we were entering, I would say that the product development thing have come uh, natural. Then what's left is you need to manufacture it at the, at the right cost and the right uh, quality. And then you need a team that knows what they're doing. Uh, I think that was perhaps my biggest learning from uh, from MIT. It's better to have a world-class team with a second-class product than a world-class product with a second-class team. And uh, th that's something I'm, I'm uh, very happy about here at Asetech, that my, uh, my senior management team and a lot of our employees, they have been here for 10 years, 15 years. Some of them have been here for 20 years. Um, yeah, that's something I'm proud about, uh, both because of the way we manage the company, 
but also that we have real uh, professionals and, and that helps a lot. There must have been challenges though, right? Going from, going from a small team of, of just engineers and passionate gamers designing these products and shipping them out online to growing to the, you know, the number of staff that you have now, there must have been challenges along the way. Oh, there have been several challenges and, and the first challenge was to actually build a, a profitable company. Uh, you know, uh, it's very nice and you get a lot of respect when you talk to investors and banks, etc. when you have the kind of customers we do. But, you know, under that, you need to run a business. And mm. if we sell, um, how should I put it? If we sell uh, 100,000 coolers to a big OEM or we sell 1 million, that's the same amount of work for us. It's the same network we need to have in. It's the same supply chain. Everything needs to be there. But if you don't get scale, then you don't have a business. So yes, there has been a lot of challenges. There are also challenges right now, not just because of SimSport, but because what's going out uh, or going mm. on around us in the world. So we've had our head to the wall uh, many times. Um, but of course, looking back, now that we are on the story, uh, looking back, you know, I think we have grown on an average of 15% a year for the last 15 years in a row. So it, it's been quite a growth story. That's some insane consistency. So how did you go from selling cooling systems to Dell to building sim racing pedals? What was the, what was the journey there? Yeah, that, that's a, at first it sounds like a, a crazy idea uh, until you actually understand it. But we have been doing liquid cooling for many years now, as we already established. And uh, we have for many years wanted to do more, have a second leg of doing something else. And the two obvious ways is you find a new business uh, area for the products you have, or you find a, a new, uh, let's say, business within the space you are and then develop new products. That's kind of the two classic ways in. We've looked a lot on, I mean, we, of course, we get just naturally a lot of requests from all kinds of uh, businesses uh, that, that would like to, is liquid cooling something for me? We have looked at lasers, military lasers, industrial lasers, weapon system, brain surgery, um, industrial wow. this and that, uh, electrical car battery cooling, electric car computer system cooling, all kind of... Uh, cooling system, but we have this philosophy that if we cannot be the best, then we don't want to touch it. And the reason for that is, uh, without talking too much about patents and IP and stuff like that, you know, the fact is, if you're in the Western world as we are, you will never ever be able to compete with, for example, the Chinese on cost. It's just impossible. So therefore mm -hmm. you need to have something else which in our case, I believe it's our quality, it's our brand, and it's the performance of whatever product we make. We can never be the cheapest um, because then we would not be able to, to pay our people's salaries. Um, and when we looked at all these different business opportunities, either we would have to invest an insane amount of years into it, or for example, being a supplier to the car industry is often you know, cost plus, you get the cost price plus whatever they think it's worth. And that has not been anything for us. Then we've looked at uh, companies to buy. 
we have looked at, uh, for example, my COO and I would go to CES in Las Vegas uh, many times, walk through hall after hall and say, is there a company here that's worth buying or is there a business where we should uh, enter? And, you know, since we're in the gaming and overclocking and PC space, it would be obvious for us to look at the gaming chairs, mice, keyboards, things like that. But same conclusion, how do we make money on it? How can we make a keyboard or a mouse or a headset better than the established players? Um, we cannot make it cheaper. Uh, and on top of that, if we started to uh, enter that space, so for example, NZXT is one of our big customers. If we started to do keyboard and mice, then we would start competing with our customers. So we actually had a, a hard time figuring out what should we do next. And we had a lot of money in our bank account also, so we didn't really know how to spend them, uh, to be honest. And then um, I, I have been racing for many years myself. Go-karts, formula cars, all kind of cars, uh, just for the fun of it. And uh, then I have two kids, uh, Sophie and Valdemar, and they both uh, started to do karting uh, at seven and, eight, uh, seven and eight years old in Sonoma when we lived in, uh, in California. So we raised go-karts at the same time, the, the three of us. And then my, my daughter stopped her go-kart career, uh, basically because she, she said that her dad was screaming too much of her. So that would be me. And, <laughs> and today I'm thankful for that because having two kids racing is expensive. Uh, but my son continued. He's been to the karting ranks, to the Formula car ranks, and he's now uh, driving GT3. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, but along the way, uh, not for for gaming, but for practicing, I have built various uh, simulators. So I would say it has been a hobby of mine not to do any sim racing online, but to uh, as a part of our real racing, we have the you know, yeah. uh, for example, my son was uh, racing at uh, Chennai, uh, so the a track in India, and of course he could not go there and practice in advance. So I actually mm. had a, a, a guy in Brazil, I believe it was, I had him to take a laser scan of the track and turn into an Assetto Corsa track. And then my son could uh, practice at home no in the simulator. So, wow. uh, yeah, it had nothing to do and, with business. And you said you built the simulator. Yes. So, you, that custom, or did you bring together other products? So I a little bit of both. The, the chassis or the monocoque, was actually a Formula Renault from uh, Daniel Kvyat. So his real Formula One, <laughs> oh, sorry, Formula Renault uh, chassis. And, <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> uh, yes. And uh, then uh, it was Heusenquell uh, uh, pedals, uh, which I believed at the time was the best. And then it was, um, it was a 32 Newton meter wheel motor from, uh, I forgot the name now. It's a, it's a British company uh, that's doing it. And I think it's still widely recognized as one of the biggest. It's, it's called Direct Drive mm. Two or something like that. SimiCube? Uh, no, it was uh, it was probably before SimiCube. It was. Um, let me get back to you on that. It's uh, <laughs> you, you know Leo Botner was it? Uh, do you know oh, okay. that name? No. <laughs> no, but you can you can look it up. You can still buy the system. But that was widely oh, okay. recognized as the best, and I think still is a Direct Drive system you can get for money. And then it was an uh, XAP steering wheel. That's the company who actually makes the, the, the real uh, steering wheels for Formula 3 and Formula 2 cars, etc. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that was a pretty nice uh, simulator. But 
but now we are four or five years back at least. So, you know, long time before it had anything mm -hmm. with Tech to do. But, but because of that, I, I knew the space. Then a few years back, as a corporate social responsibility program, we build an eSports academy here at Asetec. Uh, so we have probably 10, 15 uh, Alienware gaming PCs with our liquid coolers in, of course. And then um, we made some you know, traditional gaming uh, first shooter uh, platforms where people could come and spill Counter-Strike or whatever. But mm -hmm. then because of our interest, um, as also, let's build some uh, driving simulators as well. And I remember from that simulator I just talked to you about, that was not for the, let's say, faint-hearted. It, it was very difficult to keep running. You would have these weird drivers for the pedals and you had DI mm. view to calibrate it. Then you have yeah. this, uh, you had to map uh, keyboard or joy to, uh, to keyboard mapping so that when you press the gear shifter, you would think it would be a key on the keyboard. And, you know, it was not easy to get to run uh, at that time. But I had thought it would be better now. So my mom told me if I cannot say anything positive, I should not say anything. So <laughs> I won't say what it was, but we built uh, five complete rigs with the best hardware and the most expensive SIM hardware you could buy. And, and still, you know, it, it was an ecosystem. But what we learned was that during the first year, I don't think these five simulators would ever work at the same time. Then there They're were never plug and play, are they? No. Then you had software problems, then you had hardware problems, then you had buttons falling off, then the quick connector was broken, then the pedals would not work. I mean, there was something constantly, and it, it was literally impossible to, uh, to keep these five sim rigs running at the same time. And as an engineer and product designer yourself, that must have been incredibly frustrating. Yes, and it was, and it was even more so because I'm the CEO of the company and I was the one getting this great idea. Uh, and I, trust me, my employees did not think it was a great idea, especially not the guys who were responsible for this, uh, this eSports this e Academy. And that's actually where I got the idea and say, if we try to dissect this, we have mechanical engineering, we have electrical engineering, we have software, we have firmware, I mean, is really what we do every day here at Asetech. Mm. So other than it's a difficult or different product and a different application, the actual skill to build a sim rig uh, and, and the components is what we do anyway. So that's actually how I got the idea that what was in the market, I just, you know, it, it's nothing about being arrogant or anything thing like that. It was just not a good user case. So I believe yeah. we could do it better. Um, and then I also started to look at what's actually out there. So I made a huge spreadsheet with 100 SIM companies. And then I started to rank them that if I wanted to buy them or if I wanted to invest in them or if I wanted to buy from them. And then uh, I came across a, a couple of companies uh, and, and one of them was uh, Granite and, and the other one was UGT in, in the UK. So long story short, we ended up buying UGT. And then uh, we uh, ended up buying a lot of IP from, uh, from Simicube uh, or from, from Granite. Uh, and the thinking behind it was really to get a head start so that we did not have to start from Adam and Eve with, with everything. Mm -hmm. 
And then uh, looking at the market, and of course some of my experience from some of the schools and previous life of Asetec came in handy here. And we looked at the market and said, where do we believe uh, the competitors are weakest? And uh, where do we believe we can get to market, let's say, relatively fast? And there we, uh, we, we looked at the pedals. And the, the reason we did that was, um, well, I can back it up, because of our racing background, we did not want to enter the market and come out with a toy. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we wanted to come, up, come out with something that feels like a real race car that has some of the same race car, let's say, features, uh, so you can use it as a race car driver. We don't say that our products are the fastest for sim racing. I believe they are, but that's not our claim to fame. What we say is they feel like a real car. And if you want that real car feeling, you should buy from us. And then we try to mix that with the quality uh, and the reliability levels that we learned from, from liquid cooling. And uh, these Invicta pedals with this uh, hydraulic cylinder, I, it's probably one of the worst and most difficult developments we've ever done at Acetec. Um Why? Yes, that's a good question because it looks so good. <laughs> uh, but if you think about it, in a race car, you have a brake cylinder, a master cylinder, like you have in your own uh, car, of course. But if you look at that in a race car, when you push the brake in a race car, you can easily hit 100 bars or above. And then, of course, you need some uh, safety margin. So let's just say that you need a burst pressure of 200 bars, which is quite a lot. But in a race car, you are on track a few times a month. And every season, you rebuild, uh, rebuild these things because it's safety, right? So they don't really get that many activations. Whereas in a simulator, we had this idea that we would like our product to last for five years. And, of course, we want users to be able to use them hours a day. And then if you have 15 corners and you press the brake so many times and so hard each corner, then you multiply it all up. So we got this uh, nice and round number, 1 million activations. That's what we wanted our brake cylinder to do. And they can, and that's what they do now. But it has and who been... uh, is there a poor intern at Asetec who had to test that? Who's now got like one massive right thigh? <laughs> uh, not quite. We have had several race car drivers to test them uh, for that reason. But we have made these automated test setups where we log everything. We have video cameras. We have uh, leak detectors, and so we just let them run and run and run. But even in an automated tester, it takes weeks to hit one million activations. Um, so it has been a, a very tough wow. engineering challenge to actually uh, make that work. So you sold liquid coolers to gamers generally, first-person shooters and your, your, your average gamer, or anybody who just wants a high-powered PC. How have you found your sim racing audience to be different? Because sim, sim racers are a particular breed, right? They've got, they've got high standards, they, they live and breathe hardware more than your average gamer. Your average gamer's got a keyboard and mouse, that's... That, yeah. There's only so much they can do, right? Uh, whereas sim racers, they sit inside this tech, inside this cockpit, and they're, they, you know, they're interacting and they're feeling this hardware. So I, f- I feel like sim racers have a, a particularly high bar when it comes to standards. How have, you, how have you found that change, selling from general gamers to then the sim racing niche? 
Well, I think the anticipated quality is something that's uh, very different from the two markets. Uh, I, I think, uh, let's call it a casual gamer. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, it could be a guy who takes his uh, gaming very seriously. But when I say casual is, as long as his PC works, he's happy. Uh, so, so that's one side. The other side is, it's, it's of course been cool for us to realize that a lot of people in the SimSport space actually knew us and know us from the PC side and a lot of our SimSport customers already have PCs without liquid cooling inside. So of that's course cool. that's, been, uh, that's been fun. But I, I think uh, perhaps one of the easiest ways to understand it is uh, I, I realized, oh sorry, we, um, we launched a, a video recently where I, it's a little sneak preview of our new quick release. And, uh, you know, if you come from the racing side, most race cars I have been in, there is actually some play in the steering column. Even if you go yep. to your own car, try next time you're in the car and push the sides of the steering wheel, mm -hmm. there is some uh, play in it and it doesn't matter. You don't feel it and you don't care about it. You don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. But in sim racing, if you want to be successful with a quick release, for example, you cannot really have play in it because they don't want that. And that's what I say, that's an anticipated quality standard that if there's play in it, it's trash. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can either try to educate the market or you can try to play along. And we do a little bit of both. Um, in, in this case, our new quick release and new uh, wheelbases that will come out, there will not be play. But for example, on the braking, uh, as you may also have heard, some people believe that uh, the, the Invicta brake pedal is too hard and it's too difficult, etc. There we don't really compromise. That's how a brake pedal feels in a real car. Of course, we have kits, so you can make it a little bit softer and a, and a little bit longer, but it is as in a real car. And now that we have a, a few thousand of pedals on the market, it's actually very uh, satisfying and very rewarding to read all these comments of people coming back saying, okay, at first I didn't really like the pedals, but now after one week or two weeks, I love them and I cannot imagine having other pedals for the rest of my life. So that's actually uh, pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> you can't get so much better feedback. What's that? So you can't get much better feedback than that. I couldn't imagine getting any better pedals than that for the rest of my life. <laughs> no, and, and we have uh, we have several end users saying that. Also, I mean, it could be phrased differently. So I, I cannot imagine why I would have to buy another set of pedals again. So mm. uh, that, that's really great feedback. And as you know, we have been launching our products in a very difficult market. Uh, yeah. You know, high-end consumer electronics is not really the, the hardest at the moment. Uh, so I, I think what we have done here is we've come out with a great product, but also at a great price. I don't want to make this into one big uh, commercial because nobody wants to listen <laughs> to that. But I, I think if you look at the prices just a little bit, if, uh, if you look at high-end hydraulic pedals today, they are easily two, three thousand dollars mm. And if you look at our Invicta, they are 849. And I would claim they are as good, if not better, than anything else that's out there. So and how did you achieve that? We did that by doing the real investments. So, and what I mean by that is some of our competitors in the real high-end space, they take a pedal box or pedal set from a race car. And the problem is in racing, everything is expensive and it's made in very low volumes. Mm. So the manufacturing technique can, for example, be CNC milling. 
and of course it's very expensive. You start with a big uh, piece of metal or aluminum and then you start to uh, mill it and you have to pay for the milling machine, you have to pay for the guy who's doing it and it's just an expensive way of doing it. So we took the other approach like we do in liquid cooling and say okay we want to mass manufacture it because we need to reach volume to reach the right pricing. So for example all our pedals are die cast, pedal plates are die cast, pedal base is die cast aluminum. It's very environmental friendly first of all because everything that's trash you just put back in the furnace and then you start all over again so there's no waste and you don't pay for more material than you use. So there's no shaving off uh, anything. Mm. So we have actually done it by doing, uh, I would say, rather big investments up front. Uh, and, and therefore we can hit these, uh, these numbers. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but we have, then have the Forte pedals that are 400 and some dollars. I was, looking at those, uh, yeah. I was looking at those this morning. They look nice. Yes. And actually we will launch another set of pedals uh, not too far out that will be even lower priced. And what's really great, uh, seen from my perspective for the end user, is if you buy our uh, lowest cost pedals when they come out, you buy into a platform. So the pedal arms will be the same, the pedal base will be the same, the braking system will be the Thorpe system, but you will, for example, not have LED lights. And there are some of these, let's call it bling bling features. Mm -hmm. uh, some people don't care about it. So yeah. then you have the great quality, just not the bling. But if you later on then want to upgrade, so we make this platform system that you can actually say, okay, now I would like the throttle system from the Invicta, or I would like the brake system from the Invicta. Then you can buy these stage upgrade kits, and then you can actually end up uh, with our full-blown, uh, the most modern, most advanced product uh, without having to sell anything or trash mm. anything. You can just upgrade it. Yeah, I was uh, I was looking at so our next guest on the podcast is Dave Cam. I was looking at his review yeah. of uh, of Forte. In fact, you've you've even got his review on the on the website, which is cool. Yeah. How have you found kind of integrating yourself into the the sim racing community? Because it's quite a it's quite a niche, and I think because yeah. it's kind of a niche, it's kind of small. There's kind of some established players. Like there's a lot of kind of your go to streamers, your go to product yeah. reviewers it's not like gaming pcs where there are hundreds and hundreds to choose from you know in sim yeah. racing there's kind of a a small community of these kind of i don't know what to call them but kind of the hundred thousand viewers plus uh reviewers how have you found that community uh, I, I would say it's, it's difficult or it's, it's challenging um also because there are no standards or no rules um if you look at it from a manufacturer's perspective, like we do, imagine you come with a new product and then one guy say it's trash and the other guy <laughs> yeah. say, I love it. It's really difficult to develop product mm. for a market where there are no, you know, there, there's no real answer. And it's feeling, right? The, the, yes. the products in sim racing is all to do with feeling. It's not like a, a cooler where it's like, right, has this called my PC? Yes or no? Yes, it has. Great. Is, it, is the price relative to the amount it's called it yes okay great with sim racing it's a it's a feeling you know even you know steering wheels pedals because it's yes. a you know it's a subjective it's almost an emotional thing especially if you've been used to a set of pedals changing to any set of pedals is always gonna there's always going to be that point of friction so whenever you give your product to a to a streamer you're, you're always going to get a subjective opinion how how do you deal with that but that is, that is challenging. Uh, I, I would say on the Invicta pedals, we've probably had 30 reviews or something like that. But 
I, I think we have just been blessed in the way that out of the 30, the 28 of them, they just love them. Mm. Uh, and, and we have gotten, I mean, even better reviews than we had ever uh, dared hope, hoping for. But where it's difficult is, you know, in my view, a reviewer is someone who should review a product according to what the manufacturers say. Right. So something I hate is electrical vehicles. Uh, so if I were reviewing an electrical vehicle, then already from the get-go, I would not like it. Mm -hmm. But if I was fair, I would say this is what the, the manufacturer promise. Does it live up to that? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. And then after I have uh, looked into that, then of course I can start saying, what do I think about it con compared to driving my Ferrari or my BMW or whatever. <laughs> of course. And that's sometime here, you know, with... Um, with the sim uh, so-called reviewers is that some of them they don't really understand business they are just passionate about sim racing but they mm. don't always understand that it's a business that they are dealing with and uh, what we claim is what you get is how it feels in a race car and the problem is that if the guy on the other side of the camera have never been inside a race car then they can't review it no. as per your standards no but then instead of just saying that, then they start to watch YouTube videos on how other believe a race car should work and things mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes difficult because then if you start to talk to these reviewers, sometimes they will, you know, angle it like, ah, oh, now they are trying to influence me or now they are trying to make me say something else than I should be saying. And then, Yikes. then they are, you know, sharing that with thousands mm. of viewers and then you have a perfect shitstorm, right? So it's <laughs> it's uh, it's not always easy, but but I would say that uh, we have a very recent example of uh, of a reviewer in Germany uh, who published a video of our Forte pedals, and there was something he was uh, unhappy with, uh, and because of that, the review was not great. It was not bad either, but it was mm. just not what we had hoped for. But what was much worse and that he had not seen coming was the people in the commentary, the, it, it just exploded from Disagreed being, with him? Uh, what's that? Did they disagree with the reviewer? No, no. They actually inflated what he said and took it completely oh. out of context. And, you know, mm. these are shit and this is bad and this is blah, blah, blah. And in this case, we, we contacted the reviewer and, uh, and said, you know, one thing we would have liked was that next time you test one of our products, if there's something you feel is not right, then it probably is not right. Yeah. And before sharing that, perhaps you should, you know, talk to Reach the out. A company behind it first. Mm -hmm. um, and and he actually took down his uh, review. Oh. And now we have been uh, working, and there was something wrong. Now we fixed it, uh, and we explained something behind behind the design philosophy. So now there will be a new review that online. So I, I think just to, uh, to the, the short answer to your question is, I think a lot of these uh, reviewers uh, in, in SimSport uh, specifically, there are some that are really pro and really understand mm. what their role is and what they, what they do. But I think a lot of them still do not completely understand the power they have. Yeah. And the millions of dollars that's invested from the companies that they actually review products for. Um, it has an impact. I, I think... 
I'm, I'm sorry. It, ha- it has an impact, right? We uh, we had yes. um, we had Matt Sten on the show uh, a few episodes ago from Track Racer, and he was saying yeah. that you know sometimes it can be quite demoralizing that you spend you know thousands of hours developing a product and you have not just your passion but the passion of a whole team going behind this product and you have this big launch and everyone's very proud and then somebody in 10 minutes will go no nah, i don't like that I didn't like that and no, it's rubbish you know just just a complete just a complete destruction of of this whole you know the the, the in this case that you know the track racer team and and all their all their efforts that have gone into this one product just just wrecked in just a couple of minutes and it's kind of like wanton abuse of of, of the passion that these people put into these these products and it must be the same with you and would you say that you kind of are more personally affected by the reviews of your sim racing products because you are a racer you're a motorsports fan you were a gamer before but does something about being a being a racer yourself make it more personal when you hear the reviews i I will put it like this if people they just don't like what we're doing so for example if a reviewer says yes i know this feels like a race car but i don't like that feeling that's not for me and if you are like me these pedals are not for you for example Mm -hmm. i have Absolutely no problem accepting that. Yeah. But but when reviewers and their followers, they start to speculate, they start to guess, and they actually don't know what they are talking about. Then, uh, yes, then I take it personally, because I think it's unfair that we have spent so much money and our voice is not there. You know, mm. they, they are, it's their voice and their followers. Uh, there sometimes it's... Uh, let's say itching in my fingers to get to the keyboard but i, I don't do it because it, that, 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 that will never will end well that. Um, <laughs> but but i can tell you what we have done and i think is is uh, very successful for us is that uh, i'm often uh, you know interviewed by our own people and our own uh, videos and of course it's biased yeah. of course it's single-sided of course yeah. it's a commercial we are company <laughs> but what we do is we talk about our features we show how they work and how they should work, mm-hmm. we show how it's designed and why it is designed as it is. Then people can agree or disagree, but then we lay out the facts. Um, so for example, our quick release uh, video, I'm not a movie star or a YouTube star and I don't intend to uh, uh, becoming one. Uh, but you know, for example, we showed this uh, preview of a new quick release and I think uh, eight or 10,000 people saw it by now. Uh, and then, Okay, if you look at it as a reviewer, you can say, I don't like it because this or I like this better. But then at least by doing this on our own, we can show what is the intent of this. Mm-hmm. How does it work? Yeah. Why does it work? As it, so we, we, don't, we don't compare ourselves with competitors because I think that's uh, pathetic. We don't say we are better than these guys or worse than these mm-hmm. guys. You control the context, about, right? You get yes, control exactly. the narrative of what it is you're, you're yeah. saying when you put the product out. Yeah. So um, what's next? Where's Aztec going in the sim racing space? It sounds like you're probably not going to stop at pedals. No, for sure not. And uh, had it been up to me, there would already have been uh, steering wheels and wheelbases in the, in the market. And uh, as you know, I'm going to Gamescom tomorrow morning. And uh, that's actually to display uh, our, our, some of our new wheels oh, and, and wheelbases. Um, and the reason why they have not been out yet, it's simply because of the component shortage in the world. Mm. 
So three times now we have redone firmware and PCB layouts because when we thought we had enough processors to sell X number of thousand wheels or wheelbases, then a reality showed something else, and then we would have to start over again. Yeah. So that's actually why we have been delayed. Um, but but I also think just back to what where we <laughs> were before, and then I'll uh, leave it at that. You know, we showed a video on our Facebook of a 3D printed steering wheel. So it's 3D print. <laughs> I see where this is going. There are no stickers, no branding, <laughs> no nothing. And then somebody takes one frame out of that video puts it up and say, here's Aztec's new steering wheel, what do you think? Uh, and then, of course, people, oh, it looks plastic, it looks <laughs> like shit, it does not look like Aztec quality, what are these idiots doing? Mm. And, and, and you know, in this case, I could not do anything else than laugh about it because I'm just, you know, completely taken out of context. Yeah. And that's something you have to be very aware about as a, as a company. Aztec is, is fairly big right now, so we don't go out of business if we get a bad uh, steering wheel review. Mm -hmm. But it could be a small wheel manufacturer, uh, you know, trying to show um, a 3D print of his new concept. And something we are actually doing here from a community side is you have so many new brands coming into sim racing right now. And everyone is doing their own ecosystem and none of them are compatible. Mm. And it, it's actually a little bit problematic because if you are... If you're an adult and you know what you're doing, but imagine you are a 14-year-old kid who just bought a $500 steering wheel and then you find out, oh, it won't work with that wheelbase mm. or it won't work with these pedals. And it, I, I think it's uh, stupid, actually. Um, so what we have done with this new quick release that we have uh, developed, it's actually based on Simicube's design. And then we integrated a quick lock and uh, electronic and data transfer in it. We are actually approaching other steering wheel manufacturers now that if they're interested, they can buy our quick release at, at very affordable price levels so that they can, you know, support our wheelbases and perhaps going in the future. Software is a really big thing. Uh, it, it, it's not easy to develop and it's not easy to maintain, so it's a big task. Mm. But perhaps going forward, we would offer some of the, let's say, smaller steering wheel vendors that they can tap into our ecosystem. The community will see that. The community will notice yeah. that. You know, the, yeah. the the depth that the you know the YouTubers and the streamers and the the kind of the Twitter profiles of, of the sim racing world go to when they're researching the industry that they love. That will not go unnoticed. Yeah. No, I, I also believe that it's it's actually not something that's let's say serving my egoistic interest in the short term, but I think in the longer run it'll it'll pay off. Um, and you know, wheel and wheel basis we will start out with uh, three different uh, tiers that will also be Invicta, Forte, and then uh, La Prima. Three different price levels, three different feature levels, and again, the lowest feature will, you will be able to upgrade, buy a new motherboard, and then you can add features and buttons and, and so forth. And then uh, it'll be Formula wheels, it'll be GT wheels, and then of course, every year from now on, we'll do something new. Wheel bases, uh, 27 newton meters, 17 newton oh, meters, wow. 10 newton meters. Uh, and then uh, next year, we will start looking at rigs and seats. And, you know, when I look at the rigs today, for example, the aluminum rigs that everybody can put together, we are not going to do it quite like that because it's a little bit the same. Our formula rig, you will sit like in a formula car. If you don't want to sit like in a formula car, don't buy our mm -hmm. rig. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. simple as that. <laughs> and uh, same with the GT rig, that would be like a GT car. And then it's not like you cannot use the GT rig yeah. for Formula yeah, car yeah, racing, yeah. but it will not be ideal. Mm. It, it will be purpose built. We don't want to do this one shoe uh, fits the all adjustable approach. type. The adjustable type no, cockpits, we, no. No, we we will do it. Uh, and I don't want to tell you all our trade secrets, <laughs> but there um, because we are not ready to reveal it yet. But uh, as an example, uh, the, the way I have built the simulator for uh, for my son a few years back, where you have the steering wheel motor out front with the steering column and things like that, those are themes that we are going to uh, continue with. So eventually, you will be able to buy a full platform uh, from Acetec. And uh, I, I think one thing that we are doing uh, different than, let's say, our primary competitor in Germany is we don't just want to sell direct because I also think from a community perspective, it has a great value to be able to buy things locally at your local store and get help. Uh, I was probably one of the first people in Denmark to buy a, a robot a lawnmower. And I bought it in the US when I lived there and brought it back to Denmark because then I could save a few thousand. It was a disaster <laughs> and I ended up returning the product and I bought one from the local dealer uh, and since then it has worked. Uh, so if you do it yourself, guy, you would like to do everything yourself. You would be able to buy everything from us. And if you are more like it's not the building process that attracts me, I just like to drive then you'll be able to buy a complete rig with our equipment, uh, equipment from, a, from a reseller. So that's, that's the vision. And uh, many years out, several years out, we are also going to do motion platform. And uh, the reason why we are called sim sports and not sim racing is I think racing is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think there are several other areas of, of simulators where we would like to enter over the years. Uh, so we have big plans. Well, it sounds incredibly exciting. Um, Andre, thank you for your time. I realize I've taken up uh, a little bit more than we, than we agreed at the beginning, but thank you very much. I could ask you questions for hours, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. And uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have you on the podcast again in the future. So thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else you wanted to, to uh, announce or, or, or tell people about before we, before we wrap up? When will this be broadcast? A couple of weeks. So post Gamescom. Okay. Yeah, so then, then it's after Gamescom. But then, then, I, then I think I would say that we will actually be uh, present at, uh, at some of the, the sim racing uh, trade fairs and stuff that will be here. Also, the, the Adduck show. And oh, stuff you're going like to? That. Oh, we'll so, see you there. Yeah. So, so drop by and try out our stuff. Yeah, absolutely will. Brilliant. Andre, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You too. Thanks for being here. Hey, this is Chris from Gridfinder. Thanks for listening to the Sim Sundays podcast. Head on over to gridfinder.com to find your spot on the grid and join sim racing leagues for all your favorite games. Just enter your preferred game, car of choice, then let us know if you'd like to race PC, Xbox, or PlayStation, and we'll give you a list of actively recruiting leagues for you to join. And if you're a league owner, post your league on Gridfinder so that you run with a full grid for every race. If you'd like to participate in the races featured in each episode of the Sim Sundays podcast, join our Discord server by going to gridfinder.com slash discord. We host a new car and track combo every Sunday at 8 p.m. UK time and stream it live to our YouTube channel. If you're looking to upgrade your sim rig, visit the episode sponsor Track Racer at trackracer.com. Thanks for being here.